A happy day, friends. How are we doing? My, my name is Brian Sump, or as my high school baseball coach liked to call me, uh, Slump. If you prefer, that's fine too. Um, <laughs> I was actually a decent hitter. I'm, I'm privileged with uh, hopefully bringing some biblical truth uh, to us all this morning. Before we, we begin, I just want to acknowledge and celebrate the life of one of our beloved sisters, Dinah Fry. Uh, was a church member with us for many, many years, loved Novation, uh, served, and uh, she finished her race this week. And she went to be with Jesus uh, in heaven one day before her 83rd birthday. Uh, and so as you, as you today and throughout the week, um, as she comes to mind, for those of you that knew her, wonderful lady, beautiful spirit, loved Jesus, and was fully committed to walking with him. So would you celebrate her life and just pray that her family has fond memories and peace as you go throughout the week. I know that they would appreciate that. And, um, and we just, um, Mark put some coffee and a donut here in her seat this morning to remember her. So uh, a wonderful legacy that she left behind. So um, I'd like to pray if you'll join me in doing so. Lord, what a beautiful relationship you set forth. Um, you're, you're the perfect friend in that you always are standing there with open arms ready to embrace us and welcome us uh, into your family and into the kingdom, no matter where we're at in life, no matter what we've been through, our current or past struggles, and no matter what comes down the pike in the future, uh, Lord, you are always consistently loving and faithful, and we love you for that. We celebrate life, we celebrate well-being, and the truth of the, the Bible and the gospel message that transcends all time. You are consistently good and, and um, gracious to us. So we celebrate that today. Lord, guide this discussion. Uh, equip us to walk more closely, more deeply in our journey to become more like Christ today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In college, I, I would tell you that I associated with Christianity. I, I attended church from time to time. I, I occasionally would go to kind of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes meetings uh, in college, and I definitely acknowledged that there was a God. But I wasn't fully ready to commit. I was just starting to gain recognition on the football field. Pro scouts were showing up, agents were calling, uh, potential fame and fortune in my eyes and in my mind, and people were actually asking for my autograph, which is crazy. Uh, sometimes I don't think they really knew what sport I played. They probably thought I was like in curling or squash or something. Um, <laughs> I didn't exactly fit the traditional football mold, if, if you know what I mean, but I've said this before, I thought football was a very easy game. If you run faster than the big, big guys that try to take your life, you win the game. So it's a really simple sport. For those of you that don't under, understand football, that's, that's a simple analogy. I was feeling pretty strong and confident. I, I think it at times infringed upon even feeling invincible. And, uh, and, and I think that feeling of invincibility sort of brought this notion that I don't really, I don't know that I really need Jesus. I mean, I don't, I'm doing pretty well on my own. Maybe some of you can, can relate to that feeling at some point in your life. And it wasn't until I was in training camp with the San Diego Chargers in 2003 that I fully surrendered my heart and my life to Christ. What's really interesting is, is 2000, my last semester in college was spring of 2002. And then in fall of 2003, I was in training camp. And I'm, I'm a Colorado native. I, I was born and raised in Denver. I went to high school here. I went to college in Golden. This was my first time away from home, away from my support system, you know, away from the people that knew me and sort of that, that blanket that covered me and protected me. And so I began to feel lonely. 
uh, very emotionally broken, uh, physically exhausted, and, and so I, I surrendered and committed my heart to, to Christ. Uh, you, and, and some people might say, okay, Brian, you, you got to a place of desperation in your life, and so you found religion. Congratulations. Um, you might say that I had nothing left to lose. And maybe that's true. That might be the case. And I think to the, in the world's eyes, it kind of makes sense, right? You, 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 you become desperate and you find religion. You find your thing. For most of my late teens and early 20s, I, I put off Christianity because I was afraid that I might lose what I thought was a pretty good life. And I thought that you had to come to Christianity clean. And so then I also feared that I might you know, make some decisions that would backslide me into an unforgivable position. That was my, that was my mindset. I thought that you needed to come clean to Christ and that if you, if you backslid, if you stepped backwards and made poor choices, you might be shunned and outcast uh, from his grace and, and, um, and so an eternal home in heaven. Those of us that are familiar with the gospel that Jesus Christ preached know that you don't fix your life to come to him. That's not what it says. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And I, you and I could never get right enough to live up to God's standards, ever. But that's why Jesus said in, in Mark 2, he didn't, come to, he didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. And he didn't come to save the righteous, he came to save the sinner. So we got to set the foundation and understand that, that we're not good enough to, to be right in God's eyes. He just chooses us to cover us in the blood of Jesus and accept us into his family. And in fact, it's actually the realization that you and I can't get right on our own that paves the way for God and the grace of God to transform our lives. Now, my moments of desperation in training camp made me realize that I wasn't invincible, but more so that I couldn't find fulfillment on my own, and I definitely couldn't find purpose in life on my own. And that served as a gateway for God to reveal to me who he really is. And to show me that this is not about religion any longer. This is about a two-way relationship. And that's a key understanding because it's not a one-way relationship. It is not dependent on our individual acts and religious processes. It is about a two-way relationship with our Creator and give and take and grace. And honestly, guys, it's a lot more take than give. Let's be honest about that. But, but he shows us these things. And the coolest part of this journey with God is that he begins to reveal truths in our hearts and our minds. And he begins to do some really special things that actually draw us closer in relationship with him. Things like teaching us what healthy living looks like. He, he hears and answers our prayers. He inspires us to go out and share with as many people as possible the answers to the question, what is the meaning of life? And then he even gives us these resources for peace and strength and comfort. And if you're a Colorado Rockies fan, you know that we could use a little peace and comfort right now. Amen, Kelly? Where are you at? Yeah, you know that girl? Uh-huh. As we walk with Jesus, our convictions ought to get stronger and deeper. And, and the depth of those convictions correlate to the extent that you and I will go to maintain our beliefs and to stand up for what we believe to be right and true. Throughout time, many people have gone to some pretty incredible lengths to stand up for what they believe. And I want to show you some pictures of some people. <clears throat> this image, if you've never seen this, is maybe 
one of the most memorable images I've ever seen in my life. And if, you, if, you, if you've not seen this before, this is, um, this is a Vietnamese monk who committed to self-immolation, in other words, lighting himself on fire in protest to the Vietnamese government as they persecuted Vietnamese monks. It literally lit himself on fire to stand up for what he believed in. Go ahead. This is a face um, we're all very familiar with. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King stood up against racism, ultimately to the point of death, to, to stand up for, for people of all colors to, to find unity with one another. Radical transformation. Uh, this is um, Mr. Bonhoeffer, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Now he, if you don't know about him, he was a world-renowned, he was Lutheran, but he was, he was, a, he was a Christian, loved Jesus Christ, and he was, um, he was alive during the time of the Nazi regime and the Holocaust. Now he penned some writings that today are considered foundational in the Christian faith, but most importantly, he stood up and was outspoken in defense against Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime and what they were doing. And ultimately, he was tried and sentenced, and he was hanged for standing up and defending humanity against this ugly, ugly uh, government regime. And then, of course, Mel Gibson <laughs> was willing to paint his face and go on national TV. Um, of course, he represented Sir William Wallace. And if you didn't know, that, that was based on actual events in the, the 1200s. Uh, Sir William Wallace stood up for Scotland against the English tyranny and was gruesomely uh, basically put to death for uh, what he did to defend um, his country. And so if you've ever watched the movie Braveheart, that's what that was based on. And, and so additionally, these are just some figures that have, have lived in our world more, more modernly, more recently. But there's also many stories in the Bible about people who were losing their lives to follow Jesus, and, and they were called martyrs. And the Greek word for martyr simply means witness. It's kind of interesting because you can insert the word witness for many things. We have witnesses in a, in a jury or a trial. Uh, of course, as Christians, we understand the word witness to speak about Jesus Christ. And so the word martyr really just means witness, but I think it took that connotation because these people were witnessing about Jesus and then losing their lives because of it. Martyrs in the New Testament. And today we're going to hear about the first one documented. And so I want to start in Acts 6. We're going to be looking at Acts 6 through 8 today. Okay? And in Acts 6, we enter a scene where the disciples are dealing with some bickering um, between the, the Jewish converts to Christianity. Okay? And there was this bickering going on. And there was two, two real sects of Judaism. Uh, one was the Hebraic Jews. These were the ones that followed all of the civil and ceremonial mosaic laws to the T, and they were very structured and, and regimented in that. And then you also had the Hellenistic Jews, and these were folks that lived a little bit more, more liberally in terms of the customs of the time. And the Hellenists were looked at upon as second-class citizens to the Hebraic Jews. And they were arguing that their widows were getting an unfair distribution of food. Okay? It may seem like a big deal, but the disciples are looking at this as a pretty trivial situation. They're, they're getting a little bit um, tired of it, okay? They're getting a little tired of it. Okay, so they, what they did is they assigned some of the early disciples to 
to do something about this, all right? Now, I want to just ask this question. Any of you have little people at home that complain a lot? Or maybe you have like bigger people at home that complain a lot? Amen? Elbows? I know, I know what she meant, Steve. I know. I know. I know it. Some of you um, may be able to relate to, 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 to some coworkers at work that bicker a lot. It gets old. Like, it's tiring. And you get tired of it. And I think the disciples were fed up at this point in time. And they, they needed to be out spreading the gospel of Jesus, not spending their time dealing with this, this minutia uh, of these bantering of these recent converts. So they assigned the early disciples to pick seven men who were known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Okay? And the decision paid off because Luke tells us, Luke is the author of Acts, he was a physician that documented all of this stuff that we read in the book of Acts. And he said in verse 7 of chapter 6, he said, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient in the faith. So they delegated, we have this, in our, in our businesses, we have this, this process called educate, delegate, and elevate. And it's a way to try to get people to progress in the organization. But if you look at it, they, that's what the disciples did. They, they educated, they empowered, and delegated the tasks, and all of a sudden, the church started blossoming. It was really, really cool. And so when you think about the word discipleship, that's really what it means to make disciples. It means to educate, delegate, and elevate people to walk with Jesus and share it with other people. And one of the chosen seven that they elected was a man named Stephen. And it says about him further in chapter 6 that he was a man full of God's grace and power who performed great wonders and signs among the people. And it also says about Stephen that his face radiated like that of an angel. And that's kind of a key point. We'll come back to that in a few. And, and because of the gifts and power that Stephen possessed, it didn't take long for the religious leaders to take notice. They had been through this not that long ago with a man named Jesus. Okay, and what transpires from there is sort of a relapse of what the Pharisees went through when Jesus rose to prominence in his ministry. And the religious Jews at that time were facing great opposition from the Christian faith because Christianity made a claim to be the fulfillment of the old covenant laws. That's what Jesus said. He said, I came to fulfill the laws that we could not fulfill. And you, so you can imagine that that would be a threat to undermine the entire cultural and society infrastructure of the Jewish people, right? This, this was like turning their whole world upside down. And so guess what the Jews did? They did the, pretty much the exact same thing they did to Jesus. First of all, they accused him of blasphemy. They accused Stephen of blasphemy, which is basically um, you know, claiming to either know God or be God outside of the God of the Old Testament. And further, they fabricated false witnesses in an attempt to eradicate Stephen. And then they brought him before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish court system. So he goes to trial, basically. And it says that members of the synagogue began to argue with Stephen. And then it says they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And I, lo I love to to try to put myself, like if I was a fly on the wall or if I was in the little uh, the bleachers watching both when Jesus was before the Sanhedrin and also when, when Stephen was, because I get fascinated with somebody that, not out of arrogance, but out of a spirit of Christ-likeness and wisdom and power, is able to combat opposition and to stand up for righteousness. And so in his defense in chapter 7, now we jumped, we went from chapter 6 to 7 here, and there's about, there's like 51 verses in chapter 7 that is all about Stephen's defense. 
against the, the Jewish people in the Sanhedrin. And what Stephen does is he alludes to several Old Testament scriptures to build his case. And there's three main takeaways when you conclude those 51 verses or so. First, Stephen illustrates from the Jewish people, uh, Jewish scriptures, that the God of the Old Covenant isn't confined to any one special place, like the temple or the tabernacle. And as we know, as Jesus preached, that God dwells in the midst of the New Covenant people, of you and I, the believers. He dwells in our midst. He's omnipresent, always with us. And second, Stephen cites that the Old Covenant people, the Jews, have a long history of refusing to heed God's agents, the people God called and elect, and also um, that they uh, had a pretty good history of slaying those people. So in other words, he's calling them ignorant. And thirdly, the Old Covenant people, he says, also have a long history of rebellion against the Mosaic laws. So in that regard, he's calling them defiant. They didn't really take too kindly to this. So as, as if his tone and his accusations were not already grounds enough to get them agitated, he caps off his rebuttal with the following comments. <laughs> you stiff-necked people, he says, which in other words translates to you stubborn people. Your hearts and ears are, are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. And it says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at them, at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's defense does nothing to endear him to his opponents, but the witness of his presence, his very essence, does even less than that. You recall it says that he had a radiant appearance. Now, I, I think this has got to be one of those like incontrovertible things. For, for Luke to state that he had a, a face like an angel that, that's not a forgettable thing. And, and I must believe that they, it was obvious to them. And there's something about this person you cannot, cannot deny. And then he goes on further to stake claim to a vision of God and Jesus. He's claiming to see the heavens part and to see God and Jesus on the throne. And so that leaves the Jews no further choice. You see, because a person whose testimony can be refuted or rejected, can be treated with contempt, and they, they can discredit that testimony. However, a person whose very being and life exudes their testimony, when you live it out and you, you exude it from every aspect of your being, there's only one option, that's to eradicate that person as far as the Jews were concerned, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees. Verse 57, this is the very end of chapter 7. At this... They covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. They laid their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. So this is the end of Stephen's life, a very short um, account that we read about him. So this is the culmination of his life and his ministry. But if you know it, the, notice at the very end there, this is the introduction to a man named Saul. 
or Paul of the New Testament that wrote many of the books that we read about. And, and we read in the very next line in verse 59 that not only did Saul approve of killing Stephen, we read further to understand that Paul was actually a leader of the persecution of Christian people. And his sole mission at this time was to squash the legacy of Jesus. That, that was the reason for his existence. And so we see when someone is willing to give up their life for the sake of the gospel, like Stephen did, one thing it does is substantiate that person's convictions. Just like the, the people we saw pictures of. It substantiates their beliefs when they are willing to give up their lives for what they believe. So what are you willing to die for? So ponder with me for just a moment. Think through this. What would it be like if somebody came up to you and held a weapon to you and demanded an answer as to whether you believe and follow Jesus Christ? Think about that for just a minute with me. I think some Christians I know would sooner stand up and defend their president or their political party even to the death before they would their faith in Jesus Christ. Acts 7.59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Your actions speak volumes about what you believe. There's no doubt about that. But your last words also have tremendous impact. And your last words are going to say a lot about the things that meant the most to you at the end of your journey in life. You also might have noticed that Stephen modeled his last words after Jesus's, if you caught that. And he said, do not hold this sin against them. Just the same thing Jesus basically said on the cross. He said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And, and Stephen modeled, his last words were modeling after Jesus' last words. Beautiful. And that substantiated what meant most to him. You ever seen somebody try to put out a grease fire with water? Have you ever, you ever seen that happen? It's, it's kind of scary. By the way, don't ever put out a grease fire with water. First, okay, a little silver bullet for you, a little life morsel. Uh, what do they call it? A life hack? A little life hack for you. But I think... As I, as I think through this, I picture this is what's happening to Saul. I, I think there's, like, there's a fire, and he tries to extinguish the fire by stomping on it. And what he ends up doing is causing these like, hot embers to fly through the air and spread long distances. That's how a lot of these wildfires in Colorado were started. It's not, it's not the fire itself. It's the embers that pop up and, and fly down wind. And it, he causes these embers to scatter far and wide. And the very persecution that sought to put an end to Christianity, which is why Saul existed, suddenly became a catalyst for the expansion and the witness and outreach far beyond Jerusalem, even far beyond Judaism. So we're going to go into to chapter 8 here and, and listen to this. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and the many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. By this time, the disciples were completely oppressed by the Hebraic Jews. 
And these were people who, who just flat out would not accept Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is God allowed the, these Jews to disperse the disciples. God allowed this. He allowed, the, he allowed this oppression to cause them to flee Jerusalem and to go out into nether regions, areas where Hellenistic Jews, Samaritans, and even Gentiles would accept the word of God. And I wonder, like, would these disciples, many of whom came from the Jewish, I think all of the original disciples were, right? All 12, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think all 12 were of Jewish descent. And I wonder if by their own volition and accord, they would have gone out on their own to, to witness and spread the gospel. Here's why. is because those Jewish like, beliefs and cultural ties, they, they probably kind of created a chain to this ideal that God would only want Jews to be saved. It, it was, that's, I mean, think, if you came from the Jewish faith, uh, the Jews were God's chosen people. There were no other chosen people. So if you grew up in that, in that belief system... What is going to conjure up within you to make you decide to go out into other places where there's Gentiles, regular old Joes and Janes, uh, Samaritans who were not well liked and adored at the time, and even Hellenistic Jews, which were like the Jewish outcasts of the time? Like you're not probably not going to be compelled, aside from a move of the Spirit, to do such things. God worked that for good. We see in these verses, when someone's willing to give up their life for the sake of the gospel, it strengthens others. Uh, this had to be, it was probably 13, 14 years ago, we were doing youth ministry. Uh, maybe it wasn't that long ago, because I was, I was married, so it was in the last 10 years. But we were doing youth ministry, and um, a friend and, and fellow leader, Frank, uh, was at the house with us. We had the high school students over, and we were, I think we were in a study in the book of Acts. And we were studying the disciples. And we got to this place where the disciples were starting to lose their life. They were being uh, executed for their beliefs. And Frank asked me a question. He brought up this notion. He's like, Brian, I don't know how they dealt with that. How do you get okay enough with the fact that you're, we're pretty much going to die? It's just a matter of when. How do, you, how do you get okay with that? I mean, let alone all of these other worries that we have in life. I mean, there's, there's tons going on in every one of our lives. You know, Jesus wasn't that different. He was whittled down by God throughout his ministry, and specifically that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember this, this time before he was betrayed. This was a time where God was, I'd have, to, I'd have to say that he was making him, he was preparing him for what was going to happen. And you remember Jesus, he cried out to God and he said, please, Lord, if there's any other way, let's go that way. Let's, please, if there's any other way, if now's the time, like, let's choose that route. And God's like, no, th this is what I've chosen for you. And he made, he got Jesus okay with that somehow. And I don't, I don't pretend to know the full extent of that. Jesus and all his humanity, I, I don't know, but I know he, God got him ready. I had a Gethsemane moment myself in the hospital about two and a half months ago, um, we were preparing for, for the biopsy of our son, and, and we hadn't got much sleep the night before. Jill and our son were sleeping it's somewhere around noon. And I had this hour-long emotional battle with, with God. And, and I wrestled through so many thoughts, a bunch of tears, and, and God showed me a lot of crutches in my life that I didn't realize that I was leaning on. And in other words, I think God was preparing me 
for a potentially very difficult situation. You and I can't look each other in the eye and say, if you've never been through it before, and say, I know what it's going to be like to be told that your child has cancer. If you've not been through that, you can, you can try to think and prepare, but you can't fully prepare for that. Now, by God's grace, perhaps he prepares every one of us for bad news or to deal with the bad news we get in life. It happens. I think the world, I think of us like a block of clay, and the world just has this way. Life has this way of just chiseling away at this block of clay. It whittles us down, but God's standing there with this pile of new clay and some water. And every time we get a layer shaved off, when we press in to Jesus and pray and surround ourselves with a community of believers who agree and pray with us, God slowly reshapes us and he, and he re-sculpts us. And he, he won't let us be broken beyond repair. And he gives us strength when he needs it most. Now, interestingly here, in, in the light of Stephen and, and his martyrdom, one of the ways that God does this is by inspiring us through the victories of other people. And just like the early disciples, I think God chooses to shake things up in our lives because he knows we're not, if we live in our comfort zone all the time, God knows we're not going to get outside the box. So he chooses to allow things to happen to make us uncomfortable, to agitate us a little bit in spirit and in mind and will to accomplish what he wants, the things that we wouldn't do on our own volition. After Stephen courageously laid down his life, it inspired the rest of the disciples. Check this out. And the Holy Spirit lit their ministry on fire. Philip, Philip, it says in chapter 8, he's evangelizing to people like Simon the sorcerer. This guy's like doing sorcery and magic and wizardry. And he, he proselytizes Simon, baptizes him, and effectively creates a disciple out of him. Now we know that there's some other parts to that later on where Simon's like, hey, give me that power. How much does it cost to buy that power? And they're like, no, no, dude, it's a different kind of power. You don't know this one. But, but a radical thing happened. Philip, Philip evangelizes to an Egyptian eunuch. And it says, Peter and John laid hands on Samaritans. Keep in mind, this would be like going somewhere in the middle of Denver to people that have no idea who God or Jesus is. Lays hands on them. And many, many, many people turn to faith and belief in Jesus Christ. God will turn a dire situation into a blessing for us. He will do that, and he did it through the life of Stephen and many, many other followers of Jesus Christ who inspired you and us, uh, you and I, and strengthens us in our faith. And when someone's willing to give up their life for the sake of the gospel, it seals their victory. If you, it says here in, in Peter 4.14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, if you are blessed... For the spirit of glory and God rests on you. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Matthew 5.11 If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and God rests on you. So in other words, when you feel alienated, rejected, and unwelcome because of what you believe you love and profess Jesus, you're to rejoice and to praise God for that. And I think these scriptures summarize the part of God whittling us down in our lives, part of that getting down to what matters most. Last scripture here, Matt, Matthew, Matt, my buddy Matt. <laughs> my bro Matt, like, yo, he wrote, um, <laughs> Matt wrote, <laughs> I just abbreviated in my notes, Matt. Uh, <laughs> Matt said, Matthew said, 
whoever, whoever, does this, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You may feel like you're going through some real tough times right now, and I, and I, and I can understand and relate because the journey that our family's been through the last few weeks has been a little bit challenging and troublesome too. And I don't need, mean to underestimate anything that you're going through today, uh, whatever, you, whatever you're facing and that's making you feel burdened and down. You might feel like God's abandoning you right now. But in actuality, he promises to never leave or forsake you. Junk we experience in life can really hurt. And I think it can make us feel afraid to lose what we value most. That's, that's really what happens. We're afraid of losing the things that we're holding on to a little too tightly. And so the important question is, what is your basis for what loss looks like and for what real sacrifice looks like? Is it Stephen's life? Is it the life of the martyrs? Is it an inadequate comparison of my life today versus my life eternally, what that's going to look like? Maybe a perspective shift? God set an example through the early believers for you and I. And he, and he allowed their lives to end in what we might consider an unfortunate way for defending their faith. But when I look at that, I see reminders of how we might live if we had nothing left to lose. And I want to tell you today, don't stop praying and don't stop believing. And listen, if God answers a prayer for you, he does that because he wants you to know how much he loves you. And he wants you to never forget what he's done for you. If God doesn't answer your prayers in the way that you would hope, it's because he wants you to look and watch for the good that is going to come from that. And if you press in hard enough and long enough, I guarantee you will see that good. The harder it gets, the closer we get to, the, to God. And I will, I will say in my experience, just like we've been through in our family, you will never feel closer to God than you do when you have nowhere else to turn. No other options. And when we live like we have nothing left to lose, we get a right perspective. And that perspective is what brings us that sense of peace and comfort and strength that we need to push through and get through to the other side. It's the first Sunday of the month. And as we do every first Sunday, we're going to take communion. I think of no better way to celebrate the good that God has done in our lives than to take communion. So we're going to have a couple minutes of worship, examine our hearts, our thoughts, and our actions, and prepare to celebrate the death and resurrection of our Savior.
did not get the elements, if you just want to raise your hand, we'll make sure you get some if you didn't get this on the way in. The Last Supper, imagine the last meal you're ever going to have with your best friends. Jesus served his disciples, his followers, his, his inner circle, and he exhorted them, he encouraged them to, to break bread and to drink in memory of him as often as they could do that. And so as we prepare to, to take the bread together, he told them he, he broke the bread and he said, hey, this, this represents my body and it's going to be in a bad way and go through some pretty bad stuff. It's going to be broken for you. And so when you take and you eat this bread, remember me. So let's, let's do that in remembrance of his broken body. So he lifted his glass of wine and he, 
he told them that this glass of wine is going to represent my blood. It's going to be poured out as the final sacrifice for atonement to make you right with God the Father. He says, when you drink, remember this blood that was poured out and received by you for your goodness and for your eternal life. So let's drink together. Lord, we do not deserve your grace. We did nothing to earn it except to accept the gift you have given us through Jesus Christ. The most brutal, gruesome death a person could endure, he did. In all his humanness and humanity, he felt every bit of pain that we would have felt. And on top of that, you layered the emotional burden of every sin that have ever been committed and that will ever be committed. He bore that sin. He was crucified and buried. And you raised him from the grave in victory for us and with us. Lord, one day, prayerfully not too far from now, we will be reunited with him and you in heaven with loved ones that have come before us and gone. Their sister Dinah, many others. We celebrate you, your victory, your grace. Lord, help us to live like we have nothing left to lose. We praise you, Jesus. Amen. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Oh, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Oh, amazing grace, how sweet the Amazing love the bro